Hello and welcome to Fintech Insider Insights. My name is David Breer. I'm the group CEO here at 11FS. And in today's episode, we're going to be asking, how do you choose the right investment path for your business? Investments have really rocketed in uh, an amazing sense over the last couple of years. But with tough times ahead, it might be time for fintechs to really think strategically about where and who signs the checks, which helps them actually grow. And also, is it more important than just the money that actually matters? So in this show, what we've been doing is trying to put together an amazing panel of guests to discuss, well, how does the investment ecosystem look in a rather odd 2023? How do you choose the right investment for your startup or scale-up? And then how do you maintain the relationship after the money is deposited? It ain't just about the cash, is it? Uh, We'll discuss all of this and much, much more in today's show. But before that, a few brief messages. Don't go anywhere. Buying a home is the biggest and most significant purchase most people make in their lifetime. And it doesn't matter where in the world you're buying, the process is rarely easy. In our latest report, experts from our 11FS Ventures team look at why the home buying process is broken, how we can fix it, and the massive commercial opportunity it presents for banks and fintechs. Download your free copy at 11FS.com slash homebuying. That's 11FS.com slash homebuying. A lot of you know 11FS for our chart-topping podcasts, our events, videos, reports, and a bunch of other cool stuff that we do. But what a lot of you don't know is that this is just all our side hustle. We do so much more than that. At 11FS Ventures, we're partnering with ambitious businesses around the world to design, build, and launch truly digital financial services. We are building banks, shaping new propositions, and growing existing offerings that change the fabric of financial services. And our design, research, strategy and engineering experts are working to improve your customer's relationship with money. To find out a little bit more, check us out at 11fs.com forward slash ventures. Okay, let's get started. As always, I am joined by an amazing panel of guests who can shed some super duper interesting insights into this topic. First off, it is a FinTech Insider debut for David T. Frank, who is the CEO and founder of Stonehaven LLC. Welcome to the show, David. How are you doing? Doing great, David. Thanks for uh, hosting me and Josh, Ruth. Great to be on with you as well. Very good, very good. For anybody who doesn't know, uh, give us a bit of a background to uh, to your role, and and for anybody who doesn't know Stonehaven as well, uh, what type of uh, what type of things are you investing in? So Stonehaven is a fintech capital markets platform, and we've built our architecture to support investment bankers and placement agents who today are representing over two hundred and twenty companies in the marketplace today raising capital, doing M&A transactions, conducting uh, secondaries as well. And for our the parties operating on our platform, we've built a, a full operating system that's a combination of technology, data, and infrastructure, and then built the ability for our uh, all the affiliates on our platform to collaborate with each other. Um, so we have a 33-person team supporting our affiliates, about half technology and data, the other half uh, running our core infrastructure. Uh, have a hundred people today looking to scale up to about 500 over the next three years and happy to get more into it as we get into this call. 
Very, very cool. Uh, that that growth, it's uh, it's going well. That's uh, it's always a good sign in that way, sense as well. Uh, next up, we have a welcome return to the show. Uh, we have Josh LeBac, who is a director at NA Ventures. That is the National Bank of Canada. Welcome back to the show, Josh. How are you doing? I'm doing great, David. Uh, for I mean, obviously, international audience here, like uh, give give them a bit of a, an overview of, of you guys in terms of what you do within the bank, but then uh, uh, National Bank of Canada as well. Yeah, absolutely. Uh, I'm a leader within uh, NA Ventures. It's National Bank of Canada's corporate venture capital arm. Uh, we invest in and partner with early stage startups to bring uh, innovation, efficiency, and new revenue to the National Bank of Canada. Uh, the National Bank of Canada is a large bank in Canada with some uh, operations in the U.S. and overseas. Very, very cool. Thank you very much for coming back on again. Uh, and uh, last but by no means least, we have another welcome return to the show. It is Ruth Fox-Blader, who is a partner over at Anthemis. Great to have you back on the show, Ruth. How's it going? Going great. Thank you. And for anybody who, uh, I mean, anybody who's been living under a rock for at least, you know, five years of everything that's been happening, what does what's an Anthemis when you guys are doing it? <laughs> <laughs> yeah, so Anthemis is a multi-stage venture capital investment platform focused on positive change in financial services. So we're sector-focused investors. We have about 200 portfolio companies, and we've been at it for the past little bit more than a decade. Very cool, very cool. Uh, do you know what? I'm always happy when our producers do a really good show and get three people on who know exactly what they're talking about, which is going to be good. It's going to make my job so much easier on that one. But uh, maybe if we get started then and take a look a little bit about the general landscape. I mean, 23 is a it's a bit of a funny year, isn't it, when it comes to everything that's happening from a funding perspective. So I guess for organizations that are just getting into fintech, it's a bit of a weird weird time to be raising, a bit of time, weird time to be sort of taking things to market. But, but maybe if we have a little bit of a brief discussion about what are the funding options for for organizations. I'm always a big fan of profitability and, uh, you know, reinvesting profit. It seems like a good way to go forwards. But Ruth, maybe starting with you, what's what's the options available to a startup getting into the game in, in 2023? So a startup getting into the game, um, I assume that we're talking about, uh, you know, an early stage company, which is perhaps uh, just a, a couple of folks uh, working on a project perhaps have done a little bit of experimentation in order to establish some early signals of product market fit, um, or perhaps they've, they've just developed the product itself and are looking to test um, how, how the product is going to uh, be received. Um, you know, that, that said, there are other ways to do this. Certainly we're seeing uh, bootstrapped companies uh, coming to market and having quite a bit of success raising venture capital for the first time. But if we focus on early stage founders, I would say that the way that you're going to address the market right now is really no different from how you would have done it you know, a few years ago. Certainly capital availability has changed pretty substantially and there have been a number of distracting uh, events affecting the ecosystem, particularly in the last couple of weeks. So you might not have as speedy responses from investors um, as, let's say, you know, the height of the hype in 2021. But nonetheless, I would say addressing the market as an early stage company is going to be very, very similar to the way it's always been. Looking for investors who have invested in projects that are similar to yours, um, perhaps getting introductions to people through others in the ecosystem, which is always a, a great way to get a first look and having a fantastic pitch. 
Like having a good pitch, it never never hurts you, does it? Uh, but uh, so I, I guess on that point, I mean, you, you touched on it, but you know, twenty twenty one was like the the all time high when we were sort of seeing fintech investment. We saw a forty six percent decline in twenty twenty three, and actually the you know the number of really big rounds fell by almost sixty percent, um, which is quite a quite an amazing you know thing to sort of to see. I mean, uh, uh, Ruth, uh, maybe sticking with you on just on that point, uh, do you think that is it is all sort of macroeconomic, you know, environmental issues that we're seeing, you know, we're seeing wars, we're seeing recessions, we're seeing all sorts of crazy. Is it all down to that? Or do you think it is almost like the cycle that we're in as well in terms of the size of the organizations and the stages that they're getting? at? I would say it's much more macroeconomic uh, than anything else. Um, there's, you know, for, for anyone who's building in the financial services space and who is working in the financial services space, we all know that there's still quite a lot that technology has to say um, to our, the way that we work and the way that uh, our pro- productivity and, and certainly, you know, markets that we can be addressing, there's a ton of opportunity that hasn't changed. Um, what's really changed is the macroeconomic climate. And it kind of feels like, you know, we're going from hurricane to landslide. Um, unfortunately, uh, we've, we've been dealing with a number of uh, exogenous events which most founders might not encounter one of these in their lifetime, let an, let alone, you know, one every six months or, uh, you know, a couple a year. You know, we've had pandemic, war, bank runs, you know, you name it. I had an LP the other day who uh, was saying, you know, we're really trying to figure out which black swans we should be anticipating. I was like, oh, this is my favorite brainstorm, you know, uh, <laughs> what could happen next? But um, I do think that it is largely uh, the macroeconomic climate, the tightening of monetary policy, the raising of interest rates, which has had an impact on how much capital has, um, you know, entered the asset class. And then a lot of, uh, as I said, just events that have happened, which have made investors skittish and which have caused uh, capital allocators and the capital markets to look slightly differently at valuations uh, which means that companies are focused on rather growing into valuations that they raised at previously um, than, you know, addressing the market for an uh, influx of capital. Yeah. And obviously, I mean, that has had a knock, I mean, Silicon Valley Bank, all different types of things. You know, we could go off on a tangent for a couple of uh, a couple of hours on the, the knock-on effect of those dominoes kind of kicking off. But I mean, jo- Josh, anything to add on that? Because obviously, I mean, it's a weird time for startups in that way. And and actually this, this change in tact of maybe that traditional, you know, this is the way to go to market. This is the way to find uh, funding to to do the things. I mean, it kind of plays into players like yourselves' opportunities, really, because people are looking for different ways of doing things. They're not just looking for funding. They're looking for partnerships to help scale their organization and uh, expose them to other people. Yeah, of course. And you know, there, there's many different uh, ways to go get that funding, depending on what your objectives are and where you're trying to head. Uh, you know, in the context of this conversation, we're talking about uh, uh, venture capital and equity, but there's also uh, the debt option, or for certain businesses, they can go get uh, some types of grants as well. Uh, and what your objectives are going to seek funding, whether it's to invest in the business 
uh, to meet regulatory capital requirements for some types of business, or because you need a balance sheet to provide loans to your customers, all have a different impact on what your fundraising strategy should be. Yeah, and, and in that in that route, you know, the difference between you know traditional sort of VC route, which we'll come back to a sec in a second, Ruth, but and actually the more sort of a capital investment requirement from a from a bank. How how does that sort of differ in your mind, and and the sort of a various attractiveness to different parties? Yeah, I I think when you look at, at the bank, there has to we have to put emphasis that not all uh, big banks invest in the same way or for the same purpose. The banks or other corporate venture capital groups, in my mind, fit into three broad categories. Uh, the first is uh, one that's purely financial. Uh, their primary investment focus are financial returns, and uh, by all means, they act like traditional VC funds. The second is uh, strategic investors. Um, this category still cares about returns, but has a more nuanced view on it than traditional VCs. Uh, the focus is uh, often on outsourcing ways to drive innovation and other benefits for their core parent corporation. Uh, this is the case for us at uh, NA Ventures. We evaluate our impact beyond the financial returns uh, and focus on the positive impacts we can drive to National Bank of Canada as well. Uh, this means that we're much more interested in developing a meaningful partnership with our companies. Uh, the last category that's worth uh, mentioning are uh, what I'll refer to here as uh, explorers, uh, companies that don't have a formal or well-defined corporate venture capital fund, uh, but are interested in investing either to uh, learn about uh, emerging technology and business model, uh, to take advantage of a new approach to capture upside, or in some cases, simply to entertain some senior executives. Uh, each of these have their trade-offs of uh, what you're going to get out of them, what's the expertise you can bring up the table, uh, and it all comes down to what are you looking for as a company when you seek fundraising. Yeah. I mean, it's it's interesting that point on um, you make around this sort of strategic nature of those things in that way. And and actually through other conversations with, you know, I've had with HSBC or Lloyds Banker Group or Wells Fargo or whoever, they sort of invest in that way of almost the... Uh, uh, you know, bringing fresh air into organizations to to sort of infect a different way of doing things. And that's that's an interesting way of thinking about investment in that sense, because the the knock-on effect of that, as you say, is much more strategic than it is financial, you know. Um, that is that the case in many organizations? You must mix in, uh, you know, more corporate VC company. Is that typically the way that other organizations are seeing it as well? It varies on the group, especially within uh, banks. Some really have the financial focus. I know they're, they're a division similar to a private equity arm uh, or you know, traditional fund managers. They're just seeking an alternative asset class and exposure. Uh, but many of them, including those you mentioned, David, uh, really take a partnership approach. They're trying to expand the bank. They want to work with uh, the startup uh, to generate these new ideas, efficiency, revenue source, and so on. And it's a very different value proposition to uh, the startup founder. No, don't be receiving a lot more than a capital injection, uh, probably referral or commercial opportunities, which are very interesting. Um, however, it's important not to put aside that working with the bank does have its challenges. Uh, one of our senior executives often, uh, often says, uh, nothing kills a fintech like a big bank, and it's something to keep in mind. There's a lot of hurdles to go through to partner with the bank. There's things uh, involved, 
Um, however, if uh, you can do so successfully, you're really opening up your target addressable market and uh, creating value. And it's a very big uh, sign to other large corporates that you can work with them as well. Yeah. Do you know, I've been on the phone with uh, two, two bank procurement departments today. I can, I can definitely attest to, uh, to, to your uh, senior executive's sort of uh, comment on that one. But uh, D- David, maybe coming to you on, on, on that point, I mean, it, it feels like this is a pretty tough market for people kind of getting into. It feels like the, you know, the challenges are, are quite different in 23 than they have been before. I mean, it, it feels like a very, quite a different game for, for players getting into the market. Absolutely, David. So, Coming into this year, it really has felt like VC investors are recovering from a hangover that's still uh, still being cured right now. There's still a lot of people drinking water and recovering from that hangover. And valuations are obviously down significantly. I mean, that's very clear in the market. Deal volume, I think the year-over-year deal volume doesn't really reflect the true challenge, uh, challenging nature of, of what's going on. Because if you look quarter peak quarter to troughed quarter deal volume in the fintech space is down about 90%. Uh, that was as of Q4. And um, while uh, lots of capital was deployed into companies, uh, I think a lot of these companies won't survive. So I do think we're facing a situation where about 75% of companies have less than a year of runway at the early stage. So like it or not, I think we're facing a mass extinction event for a lot of the weaker players in the market. And to some degree, that consolidation is really natural, but by no means is that pleasant. Um, and I think a lot of people look at the VC landscape and say, okay, there's lots of, there's record amounts of dry powder in the market. And so that will address it. But I actually don't think that will be quite the case. I think uh, the deployment cycle is going to be much slower uh, right now, much more deliberate, a lot more capital focused on fewer companies, especially existing portfolio companies. Um, and with the IPO window largely shut, SPACs less likely to be uh, acquiring given so many are shutting down and, and corporate M&A down. Uh, I think that the amount of capital being returned to investors right now is going to impact their, their speed as well. Um, the SVB situation as much as just about 10 days ago, it seemed like it could have been an existential event. Um, it actually, in the, the direct impact hasn't been seen or was not there. Obviously, depositors were saved and it actually even seems like the lending lines um, are, are actually still intact. However, I think we just experienced a near-death experience. And after facing something like that, I think just the the degree to which allocators are rushing to go deploy capital is not there. And so what we're seeing is a lot of term sheets offered today that include much more restrictive covenants with ratcheting mechanisms, other structural elements that are less attractive to founders. And essentially, dollars today, I think, are less attractive to founders than dollars uh, in a previous part of the cycle. Uh, the last thing I'll point out that I think is unique to where we're at right now in this cycle is is applicable to a smaller subset of companies, but it is highly applicable, and I think it will become increasingly applicable, which is that companies that raised too much money and deployed it poorly are going to face situations where their preferred equity can be close to the valuation of the company. And of course, the first reaction is that's that's ridiculous. How could somebody be worth what they've actually raised? And 
speaking to somebody who's bootstrapped their business and never raised a dollar, it's not my situation. Um, however, if that is the case, you're sitting in a situation where common equity could be worthless. And if companies need to raise additional capital, they're going to need to restructure their preferred capital stack. And that's quite painful. And I think that's a cycle we're about to head into, particularly for growth stage companies that were raising outsized rounds and pursuing a lot of growth with CACs that really didn't match their LTVs. Um, so anyway, we can dive into that further. Yeah, there's another hour on that one for sure. Uh, I mean, I, I guess that that sort of takes us to a point, to your point, you know, uh, is is a pound now worth the same as a pound before or a dollar or whatever, you know, like, I, I mean, I, I guess when we sort of took a little bit of a look at the, you know, the market as it stands today and the the sort of cycle that fintech's in, I mean, Ruth, is, is, is fintech still like the hot sector that people are clambering to find opportunities in? Because, I mean, I, I sort of take a look at this from two angles, which is there's still a chunk of money out there. There's still a bunch of funds that have got money that they do have to do something with, and it's way better spent invested than it is not invested. But equally, when I look at financial services, uh, there's a lot of slices of financial services that are really needing fixing still, you know, and then the ones that we're looking at are not surface level, you know, uh, transactional things. They are, you know, fundamental fabric pieces. So, I mean, do you see do you see any shortage of of good ideas? I doubt it, right? But but is it just the the changing landscape that's making the the finding those areas of investment and almost believing it still is that is that what the challenge is? I mean, I think that there is a challenge of of excitement amongst investors right now. I think that it can be very challenging to just feel enthusiasm when everything feels grim. But I guess I would I would you know go back to a couple of points that David made. Um, you know, I think that what is painful is sometimes necessary, and I don't want to say that, you know, this isn't going to be painful for people who uh, who are not going to kind of graduate to the next round of funding. But what we've seen over the past few years is like massive grade inflation and, you know, people getting perhaps uh, multiple at-bats when, when they shouldn't have. That doesn't mean that venture capital is stupid or that there aren't great ideas or that companies aren't really cool. It, it's kind of the, the same story. And, you know, having having done this for a while, I can say venture capital has always been a game of exceptions. There are still companies raising rounds that resemble 2020-2021 fundraising rounds. They are exceptional in this market. They are rare, but they're happening. And, you know, what's happening at the earliest stages is quite different from what's happening at the growth stages where, you know, there are really serious challenges. And, and the point that David made around, um, you know, valuation compression and multiple uh, compression and the impact that that's going to have on on where um, valuations sit is real. Um, in some ways, it's kind of like who cares. Venture capital is a funny asset class where people just don't really tolerate volatility. But maybe this is where the venture industry starts to discover that asset prices rise and fall, and that's just the way it is. And if you're willing to stick with it and you're creative, um, everybody can still make some money. We would strongly prefer. Um, you know, just a, a down round than, than some crazy term sheet with a bunch of really, um, you know, punishing terms for early investors and, and founders. So I think 
you know, there is a perspective that things are very grim and, and everything is bad. I would say everything is just a little bit more like venture always is, which is to say there's this incredible bifurcation that happens. There are companies that take off and fly. And I guess the final thing I would mention is it might be a difficult time to get jobs in fintech because I do think that there's that hiring is is being frozen and a lot of companies are are laying off. But this is not specific to fintech. It's not specific to um, startups. You know, we're seeing that very large companies and we all know them are 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 doing mass layoffs. And you know, historically, that's been really good for the startup ecosystem because entrepreneurial people with some experience uh, come into the ecosystem and uh, launch great companies and and actually have a little bit of institutional knowledge from their uh, previous roles and and kind of take a crack at it. And that's really what we need. Uh, I think that we will see a contraction of companies, you know, being founded and companies being funded. But I don't think that that is necessarily the death knell for innovation. Yeah. And, and bizarrely, I mean, maybe going to you on that that point, Josh, because actually, I mean, we, we are seeing a lot of, uh, to Ruth's point, we're seeing a lot of uh, almost acquisitions by organizations, which, if I'm honest with you, is accelerating the, you know, the, the innovation agenda of, uh, you know, some of the, you know, big incumbents a decade ahead because of, uh, I mean, arguably, I mean, I, I was talking to somebody this week and I, and I think HSBC's acquisition of SBB in the UK might save HSBC. Like, I really think it's like with a technology platform with like really, you know, technologically enabled humans as well, it kind of feels like that might be the accelerant that they've been looking for. So in this period of time, as you say, Ruth, there's always winners and losers. There's always, you know, gains and losses in, in this game. But actually, it might really be a, a big uh, advantage point for the industry as a whole. What, what do you think, Josh? Yeah, absolutely. I think that when there's a huge uh, dichotomy between how uh, public markets are evaluated at private markets, it makes mergers and acquisitions a lot more challenging. Uh, if you're in an industry where, uh, you know, you're, you're being valued, your market cap is defined by, you know, two times your net earnings, but you have to acquire a startup at 200 times your net earnings, uh, it's really difficult to make that business case. And you really have to believe in incredible growth. Now that that dichotomy isn't as large, it's a lot more manageable to uh, make a business sense about doing that type of acquisition and really leapfrogging uh, your current operations or competitors. Mm. Yeah, it's interesting. I mean, David, this is obviously, I mean, we talk about startups and scale-ups and I mean, this is covering a this is covering a, a real broad spectrum of, of businesses, isn't it? In terms of, you know, sitting in your garage with your friend to, you know, you're, you're looking for another 20 million to keep the fuel in the tank to, to kind of keep going. So, I, I mean, how does how does it play out at different stages? And and actually, I guess in your experience, have you seen different types of capital be much more effective at different levels in, in the, the growth trajectory of businesses? So at the early stage, uh, I think one thing that's being uh, looked at a lot more are safe rounds. Um, and because I think in this environment where valuations are a little bit more challenging to decipher, uh, a safe doesn't require a management team or an investor to uh, actually ultimately come up with a valuation and they can defer that until they ultimately do a priced round and just agree upon a, uh, a valuation cap and a discount rate. So I do think that's a, a good option. Um, I think in today's higher interest rate environment, some of those are going from uh, pure safes to convertibles. 
um, because people actually want there to be some more time value of money embedded into the structure. And as far as structural elements that I think are more challenging, um, I think that there's investors who are pushing for higher PREF multiples uh, as to have kind of guaranteed downside protection um, in the event of a, a lower valuation exit. There's a lot of pushback on those sort of terms right now, and we can get into other more restrictive covenants that are are at play. Yeah. I mean, look, if you want the money bad enough, you're going to have to sign up to whatever terms you're, 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 you know, it's a negotiation, right? And that's, I mean, that's almost the thing that we're sort of pointing to is when there are multiple people in the market willing to fund things very straightforward, the terms become a lot less, you know, stringent. But when money becomes tighter and startups need it more, I mean, it's like, it's like anything, the more you want it, the harder it is to get it in that sense, isn't it? But uh, I mean, one thing we sort of pointed out earlier on, and, and I, and I, I sort of come back to this, really. I mean, we made the point, it's like a a good pitch isn't a bad idea, right? So, but what sort of makes an attractive pitch, particularly in this period of time? I mean, Ruth, you must see, you must see literally, uh, like, I I dread to think what your DMs on LinkedIn and Twitter and and, uh, what your mailbox looks like in terms of like the, the pitches that come through. But, but what types of things grab your attention now? How, How do people create differentiation? Yeah. So we, we try to see, you know, a couple thousand um, companies a year kind of per individual on the investment team. Um, I think that first of all, you know, we're, we're longer time horizon investors. And so while these market cycles can be challenging to specific types of businesses and in fintech, I'm thinking of, um, you know, we're lending and, and businesses that sort of have thrived in a low interest rate environment, um, you know, businesses that require, let's say, insurance risk capacity, that's been quite a hard market um, this year. So, you know, we're looking at, you know, this might be a little bit more challenging for the company to scale given its need for either debt or or risk capacity and how does, how does that work. But we're, we're not really obsessed with or focused on these kind of short-term economic cycles, um, although obviously the company is going to have to weather the storm for the next term and we're going to have to have a realistic fundraising plan. But really what we're looking for is someone who's kind of seeing around corners, looking at the future, you know, typical venture fund, the life is is 10 years, um, you know, give or take a few. And we are really looking for things that anticipate where the market is going. And so using technology to facilitate building really interesting needed products for large markets. And I think um, someone who can tell a compelling story about how they're doing that always has uh, my ear, certainly. Um, One thing that I kind of bristle at when we talk about like attractiveness and pitching um, is the fact that there is a tremendous amount of discrimination in venture capital. So women receive about 2% of venture dollars, female-led teams and um, people of color uh, even less. And so um, one of the things that I'm highly conscious of is uh, making sure that no matter who you are or how you tell the story, if it's a great story, I'm here for it. Yeah. I mean, it is an interesting challenge, isn't it? Because like you say, I mean, whether it's an interview process or whether it's pitching for a, um, pitching for, for funding, there's the, the output sort of tells the story, doesn't it, in terms of 2% of funding. And uh, we've, you know, talked about this a number of times on the show before. It, it becomes very difficult to to figure out a way of overcoming that other than, I mean, blind interviews are a thing to try and, you know, iron out that type of discrimination, isn't it? But, and it's a, it's a difficult one in that because often, you know, the, the talk about the jockey versus the horse, Ruth, you, 
which one of those do you sort of look at? Is it more the idea or is it the the team that are there to do it? Because there's, there's almost a self-perpetuating thing in that, isn't there? That if it's the team that are there to do it and there's inherently that bias within the system currently, you sort of perpetuate that bias, don't you, in that way by you know, backing the team who have done it before in that way as well. So, I, I mean, I, I'm, we're definitely not going to solve that in the next 30 seconds, I imagine, but uh, but it's a really difficult nut to crack, isn't sure. it? Sure. I can give you my 30 second. So first of all, I think that you're not going to solve it in venture capital alone because, you know, the underlying social conditions that sort of promote inequality are, are much more complex than anything that's happening just in this ecosystem. Um, what I would say is a lot of investors do what they call pattern recognition. And I think if you if you extract the pattern from, um, you know, the, the individual um, sort of frame, you can see a lot. I mean, I think I've had really good luck picking founders who might have been um, maybe underestimated a little bit, uh, but have a lot of fight in them. And I think that, uh, you know, it's not really hard to invest in underrepresented founders if that's what you're looking for. Um, so yeah, very hard, very hard challenge, but I always feel like it's important when we talk about what makes a pitch attractive to, uh, highlight that, uh, the more fundamental, um, the interest is, so it's the jockey and the horse, um, the less maybe discriminatory, the, the investing process is going to be. Yeah. It's, uh, maybe coming to you on that, Josh, as well. I mean, it's, uh, that sort of the old sort of trope of, you know, you're backing the jockey, backing the horse. I mean, uh, if the horse finishes the line without the jockey, you ain't winning the race, right? But either way, you've got to kind of get that balance. So when you guys are looking at uh, the investments that you guys are making, I mean, where does that swing? Is it, you know, 50-50? Is it 60-40? Is it like, what what type of thing are you looking for? I feel like I'm setting all of you guys up for like much more weird DMs on LinkedIn from people. It's like, I hear you're looking for jockey. And like, but so I do apologize in advance, but feel free to DM all these people as well. I'm not that upset about it. But uh, well, Josh, what do you think? I think it's a great question. It's also stage dependent. Uh, when you're raising, you know, a pre-seed, seed stage, uh, you're really pitching you know, the idea in the team. Uh, but as things move forward, it's really all about uh, execution. Uh, as uh, Ruth mentioned, you know, we all hear hundreds of pitches and invest in less, in less than 1% of the pitches that, that we get. Uh, and you know, if all of those great ideas came true, we would be living in a very, very different world, I can assure that. Uh, but the reality is having a great idea is often the easy part. Successfully delivering it is something else. 100%. Ideas are easy. Execution is difficult, isn't it? On that note, we'll probably take a little bit of a quick break. We'll be back with you very shortly. Hello and welcome. LFG people. To Fintech Insider. Blockchain Insider. 11FS Spotlight. 11FS Explores. Open mic night. After dark. Through our podcasts, videos, newsletters, and live events, we have a direct line to a truly global fintech community. So if you're looking to sponsor and collaborate on content that connects with everybody from fintech beginners to the biggest VCs, then chat to our team at sponsors at 11fs.com or visit 11fs.com to find out more. Long live the community. Okay, so we've looked a little bit at the pitch. We've looked about how you might find funding, the different types of funding that are out there. Maybe if we look about what happens after that, because Ruth, I'm sure there's not like a lottery size comedy check in the post and then 
there's the picture in the press release and then you never talk to each other again, right? The, the After that funding is actually sent over in the announcement, I mean, what happens next? What type of relationship do you guys typically look for and and how does that how does that sort of manifest itself? Yeah, so I it depends on the stage of the investment. I tend to really start to think about what we need to achieve over the next term in order to successfully raise the next round. And it's sort of horrible because, you know, for most founders, fundraising is a slog. And the last thing that they want to think about is how they're going to bring more capital into the business once they've gotten the life-size lottery check from me. Um, But what we what we typically do is say, you know, for early stage companies, you're raising capital in order to run a series of experiments. And those experiments are going to allow you to understand how to best invest the capital that you've raised in order to grow the business um, fastest and most efficiently. Um, So we'll typically identify really what those experiments are. I really kind of favor the scientific method, really saying like, what do we need to prove? How are we looking at it? Um, and then how are we going to know when the experiment is done and what the answer is? Uh, at that point, we'll kind of then either pivot to something new or double down. But really what I'm thinking about is what does success look like to an investor at the next fundraising round so that we can raise sufficient capital from great investors quickly? It is bizarre, that, isn't it? The the best time to start thinking about the next funding round is immediately after the one that you've just uh, closed out. Is that, And uh, I've heard that from a lot of people in the past as well, because essentially it's the trajectory from here to there, isn't it? What do you need to do to prove what now you've got the capital? But I mean, David, how, how much do you see investors in that? Because I mean, Ruth's got a huge amount of experience in in that process. I mean, how much do you see investors playing that sort of mentor role to startups? I guess it's, again, it's maybe dependent on the experience of the uh, the, the the founders running those startups, doesn't it? So I can break it down into a couple of different categories where I think typically an investor is adding value to their portfolio companies. So I think the first and the most obvious one is helping their portfolio companies scale. Uh, usually those venture teams have either themselves built businesses of the next scale beyond where that company is growing and or they've helped be a part of investing in and helping other firms go do so. The next thing, though, I think is helping identify potential customers, joint venture partners, other types of strategic relationships in the industry where they can really be accretive to helping unlock value. Um, and uh, that's really accretive. And I think the next kind of point to your uh, point, Ruth, is also helping founders understand where the next round's going to come from and helping whether it's their own follow-on capital or it's other strategic investors in the marketplace, helping them do so. Um, So I think there's a lot there. That's, I think, focusing on all the ways in which things are going well. I think the other kind of whole other category is when you're facing challenges. And that's actually more challenging and more interesting to me is when you're in a difficult market, when you need to pivot, when you need to change something on your management team, when you need to reverse course to to go faster on your product development cycle, having somebody you can confide in and really talk through those issues, I think is actually the most important thing that uh, an investor can do. And, And really having that relationship be really open um, where your first call is to your investor um, because they're a true sounding board and not just somebody that's going to 
um, pull up a KPI dashboard and whip you. Um, you know, so well, it's um, it's an interesting thing, and and the 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 sort of concept of like dumb money, like the people investing in fintech are way too smart for for that now. And but actually, to your point, uh, David, like you know, the organizations that are investing in organizations are doing it in order to help them be successful in that way. I mean, it, actually, Josh, I mean, it's one of the things that I really like about corporate VCs as a uh, as a um, the the honesty of that in that sense. I, I always um, I always say I mean a uh, a bet that I can bet on that I can influence the outcome of is always a, a much you know a better bet. So you know the bets you place on organizations you can fundamentally make them successful by getting the rest of the organization to essentially use or engage with the that thing. So you know post investment from from your perspective must really be about the sort of introduction into the organization of the the thing where it's applicable, I guess. Yeah, absolutely. Uh, you know, you put you hit the uh, nail on the head there, David. That if we invest in uh, a company and then sign a meaningful contract, well, uh, we just generate significant upside for us and uh, the company, uh, which is a great outcome. So post investment, uh, if we haven't already done so beforehand, it, it's all about. Uh, getting the company ready to uh, present the right facts to the right people, getting them to sit down with key decision makers and uh, finding ways once they have an initial contract to grow it further and really being that partner on how to navigate our bank. Uh, and in many cases, uh, a sounding board on how to navigate other banks because at the end of the day, uh, uh, there's a lot of similarities. Uh, you know it very well, David, uh, banks are their own beasts. Uh, and if you're not from within that ecosystem, having a helpful hat to guide you uh, on, on 